Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show. Here on True North, it is Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. I was a little distracted at first because on my little screen that shows me the image of myself doing the show, which is actually a terrible thing for me to have to see. I was like looking in a mirror for just an hour straight. There's like a a weird like white orb beside me. And I'm assuming I've like either done something wrong on the camera or maybe my lights are... No, everything seems to be pointed in the right direction. I don't know. The, uh, the light is shining upon us, the aura of truth. We're going to just lean into it. And if the aura is uh, gone tomorrow, then we will just ignore the poetry altogether. But uh, thank you so much to all of you for tuning in, whether you are watching this live on YouTube or Facebook or Rumble or, uh, you know, the 19 other video platforms that get like four viewers, but they all insist and demand that we upload it to that platform. And if you're listening or uh, watching in uh, post, uh, post-production post in the recorded version on podcasts, anywhere else, we welcome you all the same. And let me just say on that note, if you are not subscribed to the Andrew Lawton Show podcast, you should be uh, because the numbers make me feel better about myself. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, we are going to talk about guns today. And it's not even just a gun-related story, though. Alberta is saying no to Justin Trudeau's gun grab, and they're passing provincial legislation that really enshrines in Alberta law what the Danielle Smith government has been talking about now, which is sovereignty. So it is actually, I believe, a provincial rights issue, and we'll be talking about that with the Chief Firearms Officer of Alberta in just a few minutes' time. That is Terry Bryan, who I've never actually spoken to before. So I am looking forward to this interview. I also want to talk about China, which is continuing to unravel the Liberal government. And today, a lovely clip wherein even the mainstream media reporters that so often and carry water for Justin Trudeau have had enough of him. Take a look at this exchange from question pe- or from outside question period earlier. It is so important that authorities, parliamentarians, and experts with the proper clearances can look into everything that was done in a responsible way, in a way that doesn't put at risk risk national security, in a way that doesn't compromise uh, the people who work uh, for our national security. This is an issue that needs to be taken extremely seriously. And it's International Women's Day, so he can't tell the women to just like quiet down and stop talking over him. But he certainly didn't want to give them the courtesy of an answer to that. And again, the media, I've said this in the past, but I think it bears repeating because I believe every, you know, once every two years, I come up with something really wise. And this was one of them. I think this was my wise thought of 2020 or something like that. I said the, you know, the media will go after liberals. So it's not fair to say that they're they're all just dyed in the wool liberal supporters. 
But when they accuse liberals of something, it's because the liberal has not lived up to their goal of what a liberal should be. When they criticize conservatives, it's for being conservatives. It's actually for living up to what a conservative is supposed to be. So liberals get criticized by the media for their conduct. Conservatives get criticized for their beliefs. And in this particular case, it is Justin Trudeau's conduct that has attracted the ire of the media and of a large cross-section of Canadians beyond just the uh, conservatives that are supposed to be in that category of opposition, of opposing the government. Before we get into the real meat of the show today, uh, let me issue a correction. Uh, I don't uh, often get things wrong, but when I do, I like to own up own up to them. And, uh, you know, I, I've said a number of things of a very large and significant note in the last few shows. And it uh, was brought to my attention that I made what some would argue is a fatal error that I would like to clear up right now. On my program on Monday... I said that the city of Cornwall was west of the city of Ottawa. I know, very, very terrible stuff. I didn't even remember saying it because I don't believe it because I've been to Cornwall and I've been to Ottawa and I've driven through Cornwall and past Cornwall and I know where Cornwall is. But as Andrew Baldwin says in a very polite and courteous email, Cornwall is not west of Ottawa, but 88 kilometers southeast of Ottawa. Facts matter, the truth matters, and you should get out more. Ontario is yours to discover and you're going to love her. Well, I'm glad that uh, we've uh, decided to recognize Ontario as a woman uh, in the context of International Women's Day. I don't know if Ontario is a trans woman, as Justin Trudeau said, uh, is no different from a regular woman, but I'm not going to judge. Yes, Andrew Baldwin, you are correct. I do get out plenty, far more than I would like to a lot of the times, and I can assure you that I do, in fact, know where Cornwall is in relation to Ottawa, but I, for reasons unclear, and I do may take full responsibility for this, was mixing up Ottawa with Montreal uh, in, in terms of what I wanted to say and, and what I actually said. And, and I don't know if that's more offensive to the people of Montreal or to Ottawa. I know they're not the same place, but uh, uh, the people of Cornwall, you uh, I, I don't even think Andrew Baldwin's from Cornwall. So he, he was offended on behalf of the uh, Ontario Cornish population. I don't think they call themselves that, but uh, now I'm going to have to issue another correction. Andrew, I await it if you want to tell me what the people of Cornwall call themselves. But uh, in all honesty, I have a laugh about this, and I, I thank you very much. You can fact check me all you'd like. Uh, anyone, I welcome it. I may regret saying that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, actually, let's talk a lot about Alberta's stand against the federal government's uh, gun confiscation plans here. So I, I want to just condense a couple of years of firearms policy history into a few moments here, because in 2020, the Liberals signed a, an order in council uh, banning 1,500 variants of firearm, including notably the AR-15. They put a two-year amnesty in place. And that, of course, has passed, uh, so it's been extended. And I own an, an AR-15, which I've never been able to do anything with because it's been effectively prohibited since uh, not long after I purchased it. And it's still in limbo. The government says you have to sell it to the government, but they have not provided a, a mechanism or vehicle to do it. And at a certain point, that will become a criminal act on my part, as I understand it, to just have that in my gun cabinet, despite being licensed and it being registered. Then you fast forward. 
forward and the Liberals ban handguns as well. Now, they didn't go as far with the handgun ban because they, they went with more of a grandfathered approach here where they put a freeze and then ultimately ended transfers of handguns. But they made it so that if you have one, you're still allowed to legally use it. So, of course, there was this giant run on handguns. I, I bought one in, I believe, July, and it just showed up at my house yesterday because it took that long for the chief firearms officer in Ontario to run the transfer of it. Now, I understand things are a lot more efficient in Alberta, which brings me to this segment here. I'd like to welcome to the program Alberta's chief firearms officer, Terry Bryant. Uh, Terry, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Love to talk to you. So let's explain first and foremost here what the Alberta Firearms Act, which was tabled this week, does. Okay. Well, really, it does two things. So the first thing that it does is that our office, the Alberta Chief Firearms Office, um, transitioned from being federally run to provincially run on September 1st, 2021. And uh, at that time, I became the chief firearms officer and I received a mandate letter that specified what I was supposed to do. And that mandate letter was an, a key thing because my duties are broader than a normal chief firearms officer in most of the country, with the exception of Saskatchewan, which is pretty much the same. And my duties include running the system as it is now and also uh, advocating for change to make the system make more sense. So uh, what the first thing that this legislation does is entrench the uh, expanded responsibilities of our office in legislation. So instead of it just being based on a mandate letter from a minister, uh, it is now or will be when the act passes uh, entrenched in legislation. The second thing it does is set out mechanisms for us to protect Albertans against some risks that will arise if despite all of the evidence that it's a bad idea, the federal government proceeds with the firearms confiscation scheme that you proposed, that you referred to, rather. So this is something that is, by and large, a federal matter, we've always been told. And, and certainly it's the federal government that has, under the Constitution, authority over criminal law. So uh, while I, I support what Alberta is doing, is this in a legally murky territory as far as uh, where the province's authorities lie? Or is this something that has been tested and is constitutional and we know it's not going to come up against a challenge? Uh, well, I think that it's a little bit of both. It's not, uh, it is, I think, fairly clear, but that doesn't mean that it won't be challenged. You're correct that the federal government does have the power to, uh, to prohibit things if that's, in fact, what they uh, choose to do. And, uh, you know, that's why we have had to take action to, um, first of all, do everything we can to convince them not to do what they are proposing to do. Uh, and that's why I'm in Ottawa right now. But second, um, to, if they do manage uh, to or persist in doing what we think is very ill-advised and they proceed with this program, uh, have a means of protecting Albertans against two of the major risks that this proposed scheme would likely uh, present. 
So functionally speaking here, it's policing the police departments that are responsible for, uh, as the federal government has described, actually going out and doing the confiscation or facilitating these so-called buyback programs. And even when the RCMP, which is a federal agency, is operating in Alberta as a municipal police force, it's under the province's authority, correct? Well, uh, there's a couple of things there. First of all, it is not clear who would go out and gather these firearms or what mechanism they would use. So far, even though the amnesty, as you pointed out, expires uh, on October 30th of this year, they have not even presented a concept for how they intend to do this, let alone a plan. A concept would be you mail them in or the police come to your home or you take them to a collection point or something. They have not even got that far yet, let alone having a plan. So it's not clear who would do this. And that's one of the reasons why we felt our act was necessary because since they, this is a bit of a gong show on the federal part because they don't have, they have no idea. They haven't found anybody who wants to help them with this. Everybody doesn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. And so we're afraid that they're going to end up with some kind of I'm looking for a word that's not not that I can say over the air. Uh, that uh, I'm looking for. Hit by the CRTC, go wild, Terry. <laughs> so, you know, uh, they're likely to come up with some kind of half baked. There we go, baked rather than the word I was thinking of. Uh, they're kind of likely to come up with some kind of a half baked idea, and that could expose the public to all kinds of risks. So, for example, if there are if they hire a bunch of people to go out and gather up these guns, there's nothing to prevent uh, fraudsters from posing as these people or mm. thieves from possibly uh, stealing, you know, a truckload of firearms that are sitting there in a, in a truck that's idling while the guy goes in, driver goes in to, to use the washroom or, or uh, you know, someone from breaking into an ill-secured warehouse or something of that nature. Nothing of this scale has ever been attempted by a government, fortunately, and we hope this will not be the first time. But if it is, uh, so far, the actions of the federal government in everything related to this uh, cockamamie idea uh, do not inspire confidence. So we have to be able to uh, license uh, that whole system so that if the uh, federal government does persist with this idea that we can make sure that uh, Albertans are not defrauded or that the public security isn't threatened by having truckloads of firearms hijacked or things like that. So that's one of the important things that the act will do is through the regulatory yeah. powers enable us to protect Albertans in that way. Now, there are obviously situations in which even, and I'd say especially law-abiding gun owners, would support the removal of someone's firearms, and that is when they are used in crime. So is there going to be a challenge here if police need to be empowered to remove firearms in some circumstances, but not in others, which is what we're talking about here as far as the uh, reclassifications and prohibitions? Uh, nothing in this act and nothing in our intentions or ever uh, even in our wildest dreams uh, would have impeded in any way 
the lawful exercise of police discretion to go out and seize firearms from dangerous situations. That is a completely different situation from going out and gathering uh, the firearms of that were legally acquired by law-abiding people who have done uh, nothing whatsoever wrong. And so, um, you know, that's really apples and oranges. But are they different on paper? Or is the authority stemming from the same place? Uh, no, I mean, there, there are um, clear provisions in uh, the Criminal Code and Firearms Act that determine when police can go out and seize firearms for public safety purposes. This would be quite a different animal because essentially uh, they would, at least initially, they would be collecting firearms from people who were being coerced into surrendering them for mm -hmm. compensation. And that's a whole different thing from yeah. uh, someone who has committed a crime and has a firearm that they shouldn't have. I don't know if you have a, an answer to this yet, but I have to put it out there because I suspect Alberta will be a home to some firearms refugees, uh, given the approach it's taking on these issues. And I, I realize it may be followed in places like Saskatchewan and elsewhere. But uh, is there a, a legal mechanism if someone in another province who has these firearms that uh, right now the government doesn't want people to have and is uh, preventing the issuing of ATTs on to even move to Alberta and bring those firearms with them? Uh, well, people can move. Uh, there's no no law mm -hmm. preventing even. even but but can guns move with them if if yes. the ATTs yeah. are being uh, yeah. throttled by other provinces? Even even the feds haven't uh, gone so far as to prevent firearms owners from moving. And uh, if you move, your firearms, including the order and council firearms, can come with you. Uh, but you should consult your chief firearms office mm. regarding the, the, the movement of those firearms. But it, actually, you can't uh, get an authorization to transport for those firearms because an authorization to transport is only for registered firearms. And the federal government did not revoke, but administratively expired uh, the registration certificates for those ordering council firearms. So technically they're not registered anymore. What's your sense of where law enforcement officials are on this? Because every now and then we get a comment from the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police or a chief of police somewhere that, that basically says, you know, none of these restrictions are, are going to do anything in reducing crime. Would you say that is fairly universal with the law enforcement partners you speak to? Yes, uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, so most chiefs of police and, and other senior police officials, they've got a lot on their plate already. This is the last thing they need. And they know that firearms owners, law-abiding, PAL-holding, carefully vetted and screened firearms owners are the people that they have the least concern about. So uh, from that standpoint, generally senior officials don't want to have anything to do with it. And the rank and file, uh, actually, many of them are firearms owners, and they have often acquired firearms that are similar to the ones that they are issued because they don't get enough official practice, and they've wanted to you know, attain a high level of proficiency so that if they ever have to use their firearms, they can do it safely. And uh, these laws have prevented them from gaining the practice 
that they feel they need in order to be safe in the uh, use of the firearms that they are issued officially. So it's very seldom do you encounter anyone who is in law enforcement who's actually in favor of this. Uh, you've obviously been one of the most <coughs> tremendous advocates for law-abiding gun owners in Canada, and I, I know there was a, a deliberate decision on the, the part of the previous Jason Kenney government to appoint a, a provincial representative that was going to uh, take the approach you have. Uh, do you think that more provinces are going to start doing exactly what Alberta's doing? And I know you're interested in Alberta, but I know you've got a background in academia, you know the landscape. What, what, what would your sense be about where other provinces will go on this? Well, uh, so there are, first of all, of the 10 provinces, there are only now three that are still federally appointed. And so um, of the other of the others, uh, two of them are police officers. So they're not allowed to take the police, the uh, advocacy type role that I have. And it's simply not a part of the mandate of several of the others. So it's only CFO Freeberg and Saskatchewan and myself who have that expansive role. Um, of the other three, I know that at least in at least two, there is pressure uh, either politically or from the police forces to uh, move towards a uh, more Alberta style approach because, you know, it's not that I am so much a, an advocate for the firearms community. I'm an advocate for public safety and it's a very serious detriment to public safety when you uh, propose to spend billions of dollars doing something that has absolutely no impact on public safety and will alienate all of the people uh, in the law-abiding firearms community who should be your allies because they are the ones who socialize new firearms owners into the proper, safe, responsible use of firearms. Oh, you're so right about that, Terry. I mean, I, I the most, I, I'd say, I mean, to the point of, of just neurotic safety advocates are firearms owners. And mm -hmm. I don't say that as a negative thing. I mean, the, the diligence they have on where they hold their finger on a gun they know is unloaded because of what uh, trigger discipline is and how they've been uh, put, have they had the safety precautions and protocols drilled into them and, and the way that they take such care when they're bringing out new people to the range. And I've often said that uh, anyone who doesn't understand this file or anyone who uh, is legislating on it should just take a day at the range take half a day at the range with law-abiding gun owners and i think they would just realize in the span of like 30 minutes there that these people are not the problem well i think you know there have been a number of initiatives on the part of firearms organizations mm -hmm. to encourage firearms owners to get people uh, to come out to ranges and i think sometimes there's not as much success as there could be there because people are a little afraid to to suggest it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think if someone is interested in learning um, about the firearms community, then they will not at all find it difficult to find someone who is willing to uh, help them to understand. I mean, just if you've no, if nothing else, go to a gun show. Gun shows are publicly advertised. Go to a gun show and just start talking to people. It won't take long before you find somebody who will volunteer to take you to a range and take you out shooting because probably the only thing that firearms owners like more than going to the range is going to the range to acquaint someone new with the pleasures of going to a range. 
Exactly. I don't know if uh, Marco Medicino is one of my uh, viewers, but if he is, I know there are lots of people that would love to uh, show you around a gun range and perhaps uh, push your government a little bit in a different direction here. Uh, Terry Bryant, Chief Firearms Officer for the province of Alberta. Thank you for your work on this and for your time today. Really appreciate it, Terry. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And yeah. go uh, go talk some sense into them in Ottawa while you're there. Appreciate that very much. Look, Terry Bryant has been a, a godsend on this file. I think the Alberta government in general has been incredibly useful on this. And, and for me, I am a big believer in firearms rights. I'm also a big believer in provincial rights. And I, I don't even think you need to be a gun owner or a gun advocate to appreciate what Alberta is doing here. And I think understand why it should be a model for other provinces. And this like weird sort of kinship you see between uh, Premier Danielle Smith and Premier Francois Legault on this, is, I think, is amusing because Alberta is doing what Quebec has often gotten a pass for doing from the federal government. But when the Alberta government does it, the federal government gets, uh, pardon the pun, up in arms because they don't want Alberta to have rights. They want Quebec to have rights. They don't want gun owners to have rights. They want other people to have rights. But anyone who says there is a, a public safety thrust behind this knows nothing about law-abiding guns and or law-abiding gun owners and the firearms they use so thanks again to terry bryant for coming on we will surely follow this in the future but i want to go back to what's becoming the pervasive theme throughout canadian politics in the last few weeks and i don't think it is lightening up at all and that is the China scandal. We need a name for the China scandal. I don't like gating everything. China gate and, you know, lack, what was it? Lav scam. I like lav scam, but I don't know what we're going to call the China scandal. So maybe we need to put out an all call. If you have a good name for it in the uh, comment section, please do leave it. Uh, but this tweet came up across my radar by a man named Doug Eolfson. Eolfson, uh, he was a member of parliament for a term and blissfully, I forgot he existed until this morning. Uh, uh, but Doug E. Lofson, e. Lofson uh, said, I've already forgotten the name, but he tweeted this about Pierre Polyev raising issues about China. Uh, his tweet uh, talks about how it is going to get someone killed to delegitimize our elections and accusing the prime minister of treason, which, by the way, uh, Pierre Polyev has never actually done. He hasn't accused Justin Trudeau of treason. He's talked about uh, foreign interference in our elections, which even Justin Trudeau has come around to caring about. Now, this guy is a liberal candidate as well as being a former liberal member of parliament. So I don't know if this is an official liberal party position. But now it's not only undermining democracy, like they said, to talk about Chinese interference in our elections. It's not only racist to talk about Chinese interference in our elections. It's now murderous. How dare you? Think of the children. Someone's going to die because you're talking about safeguarding our democracy. Cry me a friggin' river. Uh, it's odd when Justin Trudeau can't even answer the most fundamentally simple questions about his liberal caucus in the wake of these allegations. This was uh, Pierre Polyev putting the gears to him in question period today. Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Has CSIS warned the Prime Minister, his staff, members of his party, uh, that members of his caucus or cabinet are part of a foreign interference network? Yes or no? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Canadians well know that issues of, uh, of uh, national security and, uh, and foreign interference uh, can often be highly sensitive, which is why we have created 
bodies uh, like NSICOP and NSERA uh, and other mechanisms to oversee the, the important and top secret work that our intelligence agencies do to make sure that they're doing everything necessary to protect Canadians, to make sure that governments are held accountable for acting on uh, information they could have received from our intelligence agencies. These are processes that we have put in place since 2015 that we will continue to work with. You're of the opposition. Yes or no. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, we well know that issues of national security uh, can be highly uh, challenging to discuss as parliamentarians uh, in the open floor of the House of Commons, which is why, over the objections of uh, the former minister in the Harper government that objected to the creation of a National Security Intelligence Oversight Committee, uh, who is now the leader of the opposition, uh, we went ahead and created a body that allows members of Parliament to get cleared to top secret levels so they can look into this question and all questions in a way that doesn't compromise national security. <laughs> so it kept, keeps going for three and a half minutes. I, I don't want to subject you to the full three and a half minutes of it, but uh, Pierre Polyev is asking a fundamentally simple yes or no question. Are any members of your caucus part of a Chinese foreign interference network? And Justin Trudeau says, well, you know, these are serious issues. We, t I mean, par I don't want to read too much into it because part of it is that Justin Trudeau is incapable of giving a yes and no answer. And part of that is because I believe he's incapable of spelling either yes or no in either official language. But uh, Justin Trudeau could not and would not answer an easy, easy, easy question. This is when the scripted QP question period, that's question period answer, is worse than the, or is, is it far worse than just being honest and saying no, if that is in fact the truth. Maybe it's not the truth. Who knows? We know that China wanted Justin Trudeau to win. We know China had its eyes on uh, several liberal candidates and a couple of conservatives, which I pushed Pierre Polyev on. He claims he had no idea who they are, but would like them to be exposed and, and be named and have them, if necessary, defend themselves. But all of this is to say that Trudeau is not giving any answers. And he's changed, he's moved the goalpost considerably. Take a look at uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, a few weeks ago, it was the big old nothing burger. And there's nothing to see here. There's no story. It never happened. And then it became an issue of criticism being racist. Once again, one of the things we've seen, unfortunately, over the past years is a rise um, in uh, anti-Asian racism linked to the pandemic uh, and concerns being raised uh, or arisen uh, around uh, people's loyalties. I want to make everyone understand fully that Han Dong uh, is an outstanding member of our team and suggestions that uh, he is uh, somehow not loyal to Canada um, should not be entertained. So now if you raise these questions, it is uh, you know, basically terribly racist, just like anti-Asian racism at the height of the COVID pandemic or something. So we've gone from it's racist to talk about this to now Justin Trudeau announcing yesterday that we need a so-called special rapporteur on this issue. In the last couple of weeks, Canadians have been hearing and reading a lot 
about the issue of attempted foreign interference, particularly from China, in our elections. There have been questions raised about our democracy, our national security agencies, our parliament, and even our sovereignty. These questions strike us to the very core as Canadians. But today, I'm announcing that I will be appointing an independent special rapporteur who will have a wide mandate and make expert recommendations on combating interference and strengthening our democracy. So I, I don't want to jump into the whole special rapporteur thing that uh, everyone's joking about today. Of, oh, well, you know, special rapporteur, what's such special? Uh, my, look, it's a name, it's a word, it's a silly word, but it, there's a real role for them in the system. But the whole point of a special rapporteur, uh, or even an unspecial rapporteur, even just a reporter, is that they will only have a mandate to do what the government gives them a mandate to do. And we've seen in the course of the Public Order Emergency Commission how the government likes to uh, set the parameters in such a way that it does not become the focal point of the inquiry. In the Public Order Emergency Commission, they said, yeah, I know you need to look into us, but let's also look into the convoy. Right now, we know that China tried to interfere in Canada elections. We know that China did interfere in Canada's elections. The bigger question to me is, yes, to what extent, but also what the Liberal government knew, when they knew it, how much they knew about it, and why they have not wanted to talk about it. And we can, of course, guess and speculate and do all that. But quite frankly, this is now a bigger scandal for the Canadian government than it is for the Chinese government, such as it is. And, and Justin Trudeau wants to just keep all of the attention over at Beijing, all of the attention over at the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and none of the attention where it desperately needs to be, which is on his government. So this committee of parliamentarians that will have access to top secret documents, none of those will be able to be shared. And I'm not saying that the top secret uh, documents that are relevant here need to all be made public because there is a reason that many documents that are top secret cannot be made public. I, I fully concede that. But when you start seeing government collectively lump everything into a certain category, it serves only to obfuscate. And government also is uh, trying to use privilege and uh, reclassification, security clearance as a way to, I think, shield things from public scrutiny. This is what they did with cabinet confidence, with solicitor-client privilege through the course of the Emergencies Act Commission. This is arguably much more significant because it has global implications and the government is still going to do the exact same thing. So uh, these two probes, I think, are government Trudeau realizing that he couldn't get away anymore with doing nothing. So he had to do the bare minimum, and this is what we have. And you know it's just going to be like Beverly McLaughlin or something is going to be the special rapporteur. I just, not that it's being crowdsourced, but I put out on Twitter today that I think Ezra Levant should be the special rapporteur on Chinese interference in Canada's elections. Make him our Robert Mueller or something. Uh, but uh, maybe that's a bad metaphor. Ezra is better than uh, Bob Mueller is. We've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the program. We'll have more of Canada's most irreverent talk show next week, but Fake News Friday returns on Friday, believe it or not, with Sue Ann Levy and yours truly. So that's coming up in just under 48 hours. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.